If you're visiting with us today, I'm Nick. I'm sorry I didn't introduce myself yet. Um, but we're glad to have a couple extra faces today as we look forward to baptism after the service and the meal to follow. So looking forward to um, celebrating um, the faith of some of the saints among us and their commitment to Christ through baptism and then um, enjoying the fellowship of each other afterwards as well. I'll go ahead and read the passage and then we will pray. So again, this is Philippians chapter 4 starting at verse 1, going through verse 7. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, it is an amazing blessing that what you call us to is a life of peace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You call us away from the struggles of the world as we had been going through over and over and over again. When we met Jesus, everything changed. We've been given a peace that surpasses our understanding, surpasses our experience. It gives us a new outlook on the trials and struggles of life. It gives us a great sense of hope. It fills us with joy. And I pray, Lord, that that would happen in great measure this morning as we look at your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts, that you would minister peace into our hearts, that you would restore joy where joy has been foreign, that you would build up joy and expand it where it is blossoming, that your peace would rule in our hearts in all that we face, that we might better glorify you, know you, and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we read verse 1 as the latter part of that sermon, and this week we look at it again. Um, last week we tagged it on to the end of that passage because it started with therefore, and so therefore calls us to look backwards, thinking about what Paul had just written. The second part of that verse includes the word thus, which calls us to look forward. So as we're thinking about standing firm in the Lord, we're thinking about what Paul has to say after that. Stand firm thus. In this way, stand firm in the Lord. So last week, again, we read it in considering imitating and being imitable Christians, being aware of the state of those who do not know Christ, the transformation to come when Christ returns. And so we take up this verse in, in looking forward, and we find some very interesting things. First of all, we see in verse 1 a very familiar collection of words by Paul describing his love for the church. He says, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, and my beloved. Could it get any clearer what Paul thinks about the church or how he feels about the church? 
He is not writing a business letter. He is putting his heart into words as he instructs the church at Philippi. He's made it abundantly clear how he feels about the church throughout the entirety of the letter. And it would be one of those things that he would call us to imitate that we find in him. The believers are a source of joy and of honor for him. He wants them to, therefore, stand firm in the Lord. This is both a command but also a blessing. It's a, he's giving an opportunity to them to not get a sense of being alone, but rather to be united in Christ. And this is also very exciting military-like language. We know there's a spiritual war waging around us, as we see in other parts of Scripture. While our battle is not with flesh and blood, we are called to stand firm as soldiers, faithful to their general, waiting for orders, and budging for no advance of the enemy. His purpose in this call is for us to patiently endure through whatever we may face as we seek to live for Christ. I wonder what you might be facing this coming week. I wonder what you're anticipating, what's on your heart that you are dreading, perhaps, or uncertain of. Wonder also what things might come up in your week that you didn't expect. New challenges. You might wake up to hearing that your three-year-old ate some, drank some milk from the night before and threw up on her way to church. Just saying. It's a possibility. These are things that, there are things that we can expect. There are things that are unexpected. But standing firm in the Lord is what we are called to do. Are you praying over your kids? or your spouse, or a co-worker, or a family member, friends, neighbors? Do you pray for those in the church? We may think that this upcoming week, week is just going to be like any other week, and if we treat it as such, it will become like any other week, most likely. But truly, there are many things that will come our way to try to steal our peace and our joy in Christ. Are you in his word? Are you secure in prayer and communicating with your Father? in heaven. Standing firm is a matter of perseverance. Perseverance is an ultimate, as in final, kind of proof of our salvation. Jesus gave his disciples a glimpse into the future of the church, one to which we can relate to as we consider the state of the church today. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 13. And then, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This is Jesus' words to his disciples. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now remember, we've talked about a couple times the tenses of salvation. When you have put your faith in Christ, that what he did at the cross covers your sins, atones for your sins, brings you in right relationship with God, you have been saved. As you walk with Christ, learning more about him, becoming more like him, you are being saved. You are being transformed into the image of Christ, as Paul says, from degree, one degree of glory to the next. And then we also have a future tense of this salvation, and that's what Jesus is talking about in the end here. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Stand firm. Endure to the end. Paul reaffirms his deep love for the church, while calling them to stand firm in the Lord, that they may endure to the end, just as his master says here. His hope is that their love would not grow cold. And completing this, enduring to the end, 
is a matter of team effort, not just solo ability. So how is your love for the church? Are you with other believers standing firm in the Lord today? In the Lord being a necessary phrase here, as stand firm by itself may sound like self-reliance. Life in the gospel calls us to stand firm in Christ with full reliance on all he has in his great power to keep us to the end. Gospel living calls us to find peace in his presence and in our dependence on him. So how do you endure to the end? Cling to Christ. Cling to the means he's given you to grow and to stand firm and to endure in him. These next verses are very interesting. So the word thus tells us to look forward for the answer of stand firm thus in the Lord. How would, we, how would Paul like us to stand firm? Interestingly enough, the next thing he says, he's talking about a very specific situation. In the last passage, we saw a warning from outside the church, and now we're seeing a warning from within the church. He singles out a couple of ladies in the church and calls them to agreement in the Lord. Euodia and Syntyche are in some kind of disagreement. Paul neither lays out their situation nor goes into detail about who individually needs to think, say, or do what. What he does have them do, what he does rather say about them, is that they have labored side by side with him in the gospel. So it is very probable that Euodia and Syntyche are known people by the church, and that their disagreement is probably evident to other people in the church as well. The word that Paul uses for labor has connections with gladiatorial contest. They who once labored with Paul to call people to the gospel are now laboring against each other. Shouldn't they be united in their, in their mission and turn their efforts towards quickly reconciling and getting back to the work that they were called to? Could such unity become a deterrent to standing firm in the Lord? Yodia and Syntyche are both addressed by Paul, but neither are told what they must do besides agree in the Lord. That is because this is Paul's ultimate goal in the midst of this disagreement. He's not concerned with making sure that the person who is right is declared the victor of the disagreement and the wrongdoer is condemned for all their evil. He's talking about people well-known in the church as fervent believers, workers in the faith, and beloved disciples of Christ. They know the gospel. They know how they ought to be reconciled together. And both of them are called out to agree in the Lord. He doesn't specify instruction to each of them. He asks no questions. And interestingly enough, what he does here is not even a command. Look at it again. Again, and this is verse, what verse is it? <laughs> verse 2. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. He pleads with them that they agree in the Lord. This is not an intellectual command. This is the cry of Paul's heart. Remember, he loves the church. He wants the church to stand firm in the Lord. And he says, look, you two have got to be in agreement here in order for this to happen. Yet he handles the situation with gentleness and simplicity. Notice these things in Paul's admonition. His goal is to respectfully and peacefully exhort them in the gospel to come together in the Lord. One difficulty we may find as we experience disagreement is the matter of initiation. 
We say things like, I'll talk about it when he's ready to come and apologize to me. Or as soon as I get over feeling bad about this, maybe then I'll be open to, to agreeing with them, to making some kind of effort towards reconciliation. However, in Christ, we are compelled by the patient, steadfast love of Christ to consider others as more important than ourselves, as we've read in Philippians, and to sacrificially love them, even if it takes a step of humility on our part. I can, to my shame, recount two moments already in the last five days or so where I had spoken sharply to my wife. And we could tell there was something wrong. There was, there was an issue between us, and, and I had, it, was a, it was a forceful thing. I had to take control of myself and say, I need to extend apologies to her now. I need to let go of this issue now. And I did, and the truth is, is that after those kind of disagreements happen, or those, those kind of, the, the kind of difficulty between, in the midst of a relationship, when those things are resolved, no longer do you care about making sure she understood why I was so frustrated in that moment. I've already apologized, and she's forgiven me, and that's the end of the story. I don't walk away going, but I really wish she would know that I was very frustrated that she kept asking me about that thing. I don't care anymore. I'm not saying that to bolster myself up. I'm just telling you that if you can do that hard move in a relationship where there's disagreement of, of initiating and stepping forth in humility, seeking out forgiveness if need be, or whatever it might be to bring about reconciliation, it is worth taking that effort. So both Euodia and Syntyche, man, how many times are you going to have to say Euodia in this sermon? Boy, it's getting harder every time. I don't know why. Both of these ladies are called to race to each other and be the first to initiate conversation with the goal of self-sacrificial reconciliation. They could not continue to stand firm in the Lord together if they were not even right with each other. Look to Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 with me for a moment. Jesus is talking about worship here. He's, he's, uh, this is on the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, If you are offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. To put this in modern terms, perhaps, or maybe into our modern situation, it would be like coming to church to offer your sacrifice of worship and realizing, uh, something's not right. I need to get right with so-and-so about whatever that issue may be. And what Jesus is saying is to the effect of, don't just stand there. Go, reconcile. If you need to walk out to the parking lot and make a phone call, do it. If you need to grab somebody else from the church and say, hey, can we talk for a second before we continue on in the worship service? We'll probably not stop the whole service for you. But what Jesus is saying here is that it would be better for you to deal with this issue quickly before you offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, why is that? Why is it so important? Well, of course, because every sacrifice that we give to the Lord must be an acceptable sacrifice of worship through Christ. And our ultimate sacrifice of Christ at the cross was not a sacrifice that was given in, in which Jesus hung on the cross and still had some issue with another person that he hadn't dealt with. He was the spotless Lamb of God for you. And so as we celebrate that sacrifice of Christ, 
Waste no time in reconciling with whoever you need to reconcile with. And I will tell you this, that if you come to that person in an attitude of, of seeking forgiveness and wanting reconciliation, the Lord will bless those efforts. Even if you walk away and that person still kind of like kicks you out, you can still say to the Lord, all right, Lord, I've done what I need to do in regards to this issue. Does that make sense? You don't have to answer that question. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Just saying it for my own good. <laughs> Consider the idea of worship and unity in this passage. Could these two ladies come to church on Sunday morning, stand by each other, and sing the songs with a pure heart? If they have this disagreement, probably not. Worship is impeded when we withhold forgiveness and turn our faces from reconciliation. It's inconsistent with the gospel. Perhaps they needed to remind it of Paul's love for them in order to remember that Christ had loved them infinitely better and that they ought to therefore love each other as well. Consider Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. You'll probably remember it. I just have this one verse up here, but this would be the, um, the parable regarding the one who had been forgiven a great debt, the unforgiving servant. So he who had no hope of repaying the debt of 10,000 talents, which would amount to millions of dollars today, by the way, begged to have time to repay the king, and the king forgave him of the enormous debt. He didn't even offer him a timeline. He just said, look, I forgive you. Go on. The servant happy about his own forgiveness that he's received, goes and finds a man who owes him 100 denarii, which comes about to a few bucks, and demands that he pay him back. He grabs him by the throat and says, pay me what you owe. Well, of course, the king is out enraged by this and throws the first servant into prison. And Jesus concludes this parable in Matthew 18, verse 35, by saying, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now this, this command here of forgiving from the heart talks about a genuine forgiveness, not just saying, okay, I forgive you. Not, not being like the Fonz trying to say sorry. You guys remember that from Happy Days? Somebody, Happy Days reference would be good, I hope. Right, thank you. Okay, good. You know, when he's in there, he's like, I'm sorry. And it's like a long time before he can finally say, I'm sorry. Um, we're not just looking for, you know, uh, the words to come out of your mouth. We're looking for a forgiveness that stems from your heart of extending forgiveness. Why? Because you yourself in Christ have been forgiven far more than what you will ever be asked to forgive another person. And yet somehow we find it harder. these kind of passages point to a terrifying fact that the consequence of walking in unforgiveness towards a person are terrifying. This man was cast into prison in the parable. It's hard to trust the claim of someone that has been forgiven the weighty eternal judgment against their sin. If they claim that they've been forgiven in Christ and yet cannot find it in themselves to forgive another person, hard to trust that that confession of faith is genuine. If my heart has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus, it should be a very important thing to me to see that I am right with my brother or sister here and now. How might I expect to stand firm in the Lord if my unforgiveness calls into question whether I even know the Lord? 
Paul calls others to help them in their effort to reconcile in the Lord. So if you look over here into verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. He addresses this true companion, which could be a handful of different things. It seems best understood that he's speaking genuinely and generally to the church to act as a true companion, a true member of a fellowship with a shared goal that they would sacrificially move towards, that they would see Euodia and Syntyche and look for ways to help them reconcile with one another. The church is not meant to, as it so often does, retreat and draw back until the dust clears. Conversely, this is not a call for nosy Christians. It's a plea to recognize that when one part of the body is sick, the whole body will feel the lack. Some part of the body then must come to the aid of the one in disagreement and help them reach the goal with gentleness and patience. So if you knew that there was a disagreement among us as a church that could cause division even in the slightest way, would your heart break? Would you long to encourage another to reconciliation? Or would you perhaps think, I'm just going to sit back and see how this turns out? Or perhaps the worst response, I'm going to get in there and make sure they get settled straight. Having this attitude of bringing some kind of judgment or or bringing some authoritative, um, strong-armed move into this relationship. This is not what Paul has done. Remember, again, he has entreated these two ladies. I'm urging you. I want you to be reconciled. I saw you working together in the gospel. I want that to be restored in you is Paul's desire. He asks for help because their names are written in the book of life. It's a very interesting turn here. It was interesting enough that he brings about this specific situation. He says, help these women. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Wherein all believers in Christ are included. And he brings it up at this point to point to the unity we all have in Christ in an eternal perspective. If there are to be no disagreements or disunity in the kingdom of God, we must work toward that today. Disagreement drowns my love and my peace in the Lord. Coming to my brother with whom I have an issue and humbly seeking to serve him rather than myself is the only Christ-like response available in the gospel. It doesn't mean that we let people walk all over us, And it doesn't mean we don't stand up for the truth, but that our main motivation is that we might have peace in the Lord as we stand firm, united in him. This third section, rejoicing in the Lord and in prayer, regards to prayer as well. It's a very interesting transition. He moves away from this specific situation in a sort of way as saying, nevertheless, or even so, or as these things are playing out, rejoice really makes for an easy sermon series in a way when one of Paul's biggest points in the letter is a clear application of rejoice, a clear topic of joy itself. Perhaps he knows that so often in reading this particular letter even, (laughs) that we would read it at first and not immediately do it. So he repeats himself, kind of like a parent saying, get away from that, get away from that, get away from that. Paul is saying, rejoice, rejoice. I know you're moving past that word, so again I will say, rejoice. Consider the buildup of the call to rejoice in the book of Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, we're called to rejoice in gospel partnership. 
2, 17 through 18 says that we ought to rejoice even in persecution. 3, 1 says finally rejoice as the ultimate response to the good news of Jesus. And now we have the addition of rejoicing in the Lord. How often? Always. And again, I will say rejoice. So we saw with stand firm in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord gives us a clear foundation for where our joy ought to come from. There are things in life that do not elicit joy in our hearts. I know that's a big revelation for you today, right? Paul does not so frequently call us to rejoice because he's unaware of these things. He knows that we face trials and difficulties day to day, and he himself is saying this phrase, from where? Where is he writing this letter? He's in prison. He's not at the beach on vacation saying, hey, you should rejoice because I'm rejoicing here on vacation. He's saying, rejoice because I'm rejoicing and I'm in prison. I wonder if I could call others to rejoice if I myself were in prison. But if like Paul we could do that. We could both embrace joy today and call others to it as well. So many years ago, six years ago now, my first year of teaching, I had a very dear student from Thailand. He was only a few years into learning English. He was very smart. And he was very hardworking. And he was also very hard on himself. He suddenly had this really funny catchphrase of life is hard. In fact, nobody in the class could say life is hard because that was like his line. So, so we would often, you know, particularly at the end of the day as we're writing down all the assignments that mean old Pastor Vion gave you for the whole week, we would be looking to him as everybody moaned and groaned about it to say, life is hard. It was very humorous, but it was also very genuine. He was one who needed the encouragement to rejoice in the Lord always. He never stopped working hard. And life was still very hard for him sometimes. But he had the joy of the Lord in his smile that was obvious anytime you asked him. So we are told to rejoice when? Always. All the time. Regardless of anything else. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Whether life is going smoothly or not, obeying this command deals with our issues of sin and our issues of disagreement with each other. To fix my eyes on Christ and find the joy available in him is for me to find great peace as I seek reconciliation with other brothers and sisters. Looking to the Lord and rejoicing calls my attention away from the anxieties that seem so big but are minuscule compared to him. So what do we find when we resolve to rejoice in the Lord always? Consider Nehemiah 8.10, an easy verse to memorize that's not up there. My bad. Nehemiah 8.10, you might already know it. Does anybody know it? Has to do with joy, particularly the joy of the Lord and what it is for you. <laughs> the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you feel weak from the pressures of life at times? Rejoice in the Lord and find strength. Or perhaps Psalm 34.8, which I also forgot to put on the PowerPoint. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And remember, blessed is just the same word for happy or joyful. Blessed is he who finds refuge in him. Rejoice in the Lord and find a strong refuge to stand firm in him. 
Paul follows this admonition to rejoice with, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. In your joy, let go of fears and frailty and embrace gentleness among others. The Lord is at hand. This phrase could refer to either of two things, and I would say you should make the application from both of the potential meanings. It could mean, one, that he is coming soon. Two, it could also mean that he's here with you now. Don't let quarrels and disagreements cause divisions among you. Be reasonable and gentle, not ones marked by self-defensive mindsets. The Lord is near to us now, and one day we will see with our eyes how near he truly is. Remember Christ's words in Matthew 18, verse 20. He is in our midst when we gather. He says, wherever two or more are gathered, I am there. As the context of that passage shows us, it's in order to address sin or disunity in the midst of the church. Have you considered the effect of joy in evangelism? That when Paul says here, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, or another translation for that word reasonableness is gentleness, that would stem from joy. Have you considered how joy affects evangelism? A watching world looks on to see what Christianity is all about, wondering if we're going to fulfill all the stereotypes, all the negative suspicions that circle around the church over and over throughout history. Or if we will turn to the Lord and rejoice, surprising the lost with overwhelming joy in Christ. Will we endure and persevere in this joy to honor Christ as he is worthy, to satisfy our own hearts and cause the world to marvel at the great joy available in Christ. Paul brings another refreshing command to follow. We are a culture that is not unfamiliar with anxiety. We worry about money, we worry about kids, we worry about government, we worry about the environment, and way too many other things. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher from the 1800s, said of this passage, very poetically, as he often did, have no care, but much prayer. Prayer is the cure for care. So again, he said, have no care, but much prayer. Prayer is the cure for care. And so Paul instructs us in this way. Do not be drowned by worry. Drown your worry in prayer. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Don't let prayer be your last resort, but your access to your strongest ally. You may also be familiar with John Piper's famous quote on prayer. He says, Prayer is not ringing the butler for your afternoon tea. It's a wartime walkie-talkie to call in reinforcements. Remember to stand firm in the Lord. Be faithful soldiers, aware of the battle ahead, and ready to face anything that the world, Satan, or our flesh might throw our way. When we have that kind of attitude, we defeat much of the opposition that we typically are overcome by. Knowing there's a battle and knowing the resources available for us means we at the very least will not be completely overtaken by the cares of this world, but stand strong enough to put up something of a fight at least. But if we abide in his word, if we are fervent and fer fervent, yeah, that's a hard word to say, and desperate to come to him in prayer, if we discipline ourselves and free up our schedule to be with other believers during the week, if we read, if we pray, if we fellowship, the Holy Spirit will cause these things to have great effect on your standing firm in the Lord and in your joy. Don Carson said, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier 
who enjoys an excellent prayer life. Do you run to prayer when worry hits you? Too often we cease to pray when we think we have found some way of grabbing hold of whatever the situation may be. We act as if prayer doesn't bring what is best for me because my perceived needs are not guaranteed to be met. I have a better sense of peace when I am the one in complete control. I need to come to terms with the fact that I have absolutely no control. I can make and act on decisions, but control belongs to no one but the Creator. That goes for all of us. He it is who calls us to pray in all circumstances. And did you know that he loves it when we pray? He is not burdened. He's not bothered. He's not bored. He cares. He commissions us. And he rejoices when we come to him in prayer. Last thing, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He has promised that when we pray, his peace will guard us. Just as we were called to stand firm at verse 1, his peace stands firm as a soldier guarding our hearts and our minds. The watchful guard of the conquering army that has already won in Christ. We are not promised that circumstances will always go a delightful way, but as we delight in him, his peace guards our decisions, our affections, our thoughts, and our attitudes in Christ. He promises it. So here again from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon wrote this, when a Christian grasps a promise, if he does not take it to God, he dishonors him. But when he hastens to the throne of grace and cries, Lord, I have nothing to recommend me, but this thou hast said it, then his desire is granted. Our heavenly banker delights to cash his own notes. Never let the promise rust. Draw the sword of promise out of its scabbard and use it with holy violence. Think not that God will be troubled by your importunately reminding him of his promises. He loves to hear the loud outcries of needy souls. It is his delight to bestow favors. He is more ready to hear than you are to ask. The sun is not weary of shining, the sun is not weary of shining, nor the fountain of flowing. It is God's nature to keep his promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne with do as thou hast said. So, brothers and sisters, pray. Receive the true guard of your souls, of your minds, of your hearts, the peace of God. Let it be a calm that sweeps over your soul and empowers you to love the brothers and sisters. Let it motivate your unity among other believers. Let it bring rejoicing to your soul as you seek him. We worship God in his patient love, sustaining us and calling us to stand firm in him. We worship God who is able to bring true unity to his people through the hope of the future won for us in Christ. We worship God who is an ever-present, never-ending source of joy for us in Christ and who hears our prayers and listens in his kindness. We worship God who is mighty, whose power exceeds any known in human history and who grants us the peace of his strong arm to guard us in Christ. So I'd call you to reflect on a couple of things. First of all, on the fact that we did have all these verses up here. End quotes. 
and no reflection points. Wow. Okay, so I had it backwards. Can you tell it was a busy week? Is it that obvious? Here's what I have for you to reflect on. Peace is available to you in all that Christ has for you in every area of your life. Receive it with joy through prayer. Secondly, walk together to build gospel unity and rejoice in a life of prayer and peace 